You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max. Welcome to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Last week, the ACLU's National Legal Director, David Cole, was in Chicago for a special event, and Talking Liberties took that opportunity to sit down with David and talk to him about the recently completed Supreme Court term. You'll see that this episode is a bit of a departure from our traditional format. As you will hear, we recorded this conversation as a joint episode with our friends at the Indivisible Chicago podcast featuring their host, Tom Moss. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So we're pleased to be joined on the Indivisible Chicago podcast and the Talking Liberties podcast. With the ACLU, I'm Ed Yanka. And I'm Tom Moss, and we're here with uh, Mr. David Cole, who's the ACLU legal director. Uh, this is like sort of one of those, um, uh, remember when we were kids and the, the cast of, of Green Acres would visit <laughs> the cast of the Beverly Hillbillies? So this you, is- you realize, Tom, that nobody except for those of our age will actually understand that reference. Mm. But and, this and is none a- of them will be listening to the podcast. <laughs> But this is, a cross, that more and more. this is a crossover episode. Yeah, That's exactly, exactly right. right. That's, That's exactly what we're doing. Right. But thank you for doing this. And and as I said before we began, thank you so much for the work that Indivisible Chicago has done. I think the last time we were together, I was a guest on this you podcast. Were indeed. Uh, so this is really, um, this is exciting to be able to do this this way. Well, and thank you for the work that the ACLU does. And thank you, Mr. Cole, for the work that the ACLU does. And, you know, I could sit here all afternoon and, and have and talked about talk about 70 sitcoms. But maybe maybe we better dive. We dive should probably yeah into the matter at hand, right? Uh, so, Mr. Cole, thank you so much for joining us, and um, it's uh, it's really a privilege, and uh, we have a lot to talk about, or a lot we could talk about. The Supreme Court term began last October. Um, with a new justice, Justice Kavanaugh, and um, I think everybody listening to this, where they know about the Green Acres or not, will uh, will certainly know that story. Uh, how do things look in this first term with, uh, I guess, what we could call the Kavanaugh Court? But what uh, what's been your impression? So I I, I think it's uh, you know as they often say, it's too early to tell. Uh, a justice's first term, even you know Justice Gorsuch, only in his third term. You, you, you know, it, it's it's difficult because justices are before they become justices they are judges these days they are bound by precedent in a way that they are not when they are Supreme Court justices and so it takes them a while to you know get their legs and figure out where they are. I will say that one thing we saw this term was the court opened you know with the most bitterly partisan battle over a nomination since Robert Bork, and probably more bitterly partisan. And I think what we saw from the court this term was a concerted effort on the court's part to uh, be as non-partisan as they could be to sort of to sort of distinguish themselves from the Congress, from the president, from the social media, from the rest of the world, frankly, which is divided along partisan lines. So, for example, you know, there were 16 five to four decisions. We have five Republican justices. We have four Democratic justices. This term, there were 16 five fours where uh, eight of which the, the Republicans won, 5-4, against the Democrats. The other eight, the Democrats won because one Republican justice joined 
with the four liberals to support uh, a view that the other four Republicans opposed. So, you know, in a way, they they just, it came out equal in terms of liberal and conservative results. They also, you had cases like um, the Flowers case, which was a case about uh, race discrimination and jury selection, in which Justice Kavanaugh uh, writes the majority decision and is joined by Justice Roberts and the liberals. And you have Justice Thomas and Justice... Uh, uh, Gorsuch, I think, uh, uh, um, uh, dissenting. And you have cases like the Bladensburg Cross case, a, ch- uh, f- a First Amendment Establishment Clause challenge to the uh, Bladensburg, Maryland's maintenance of a 40-foot Latin cross as a World War I memorial. The court upholds that, uh, but Justices Kagan and Justice, and Justice Breyer, democratically, uh, democratically appointed justices, join the conservative uh, justices to vote in favor and, uh, you know, to have to get a fairly narrow decision. So I think they did everything they could. And even, you know, coming down to the last day of the term, two biggest cases of the term, partisan gerrymandering and census, and they come out, one comes out one way, one comes out the other way because Roberts votes with the liberals on one and votes with the conservatives on the other. Do we get that wrong when we look at who appointed someone? Is is that part of the issue you think sometimes in, in sort of the common, I think, observation of the court. Do we get that wrong just by thinking, oh, this was appointed by this president, they're going to go this way and and vice versa? Is it going to be more nuanced as we move forward? It's it's definitely more nuanced, but it's also not totally wrong. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Which is a nuanced reason. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I mean, historically, um, you know, some of some Republican appointed justices have been very liberal. So, you know, Warren, Earl Warren of the Warren Court was appointed yeah. by uh, Eisenhower. Um, uh, Justice uh, Brennan, one of the most liberal justices ever, was appointed by a Republican. Justice Stevens from Justice, Chicago. Justice we sit Ste- here in Chicago. Yeah, Stevens, Justice Souter, Justice Blackman. These were all Republican appointees who moved— uh, well, either were liberal or moved to the left over time. Justice Kennedy and Justice O'Connor, same right. thing. I mean, they weren't as liberal, but they became sort of the place where you would get a liberal result was from from O'Connor joining the liberals or Kennedy joining the liberals. So, so in that sense, you know, and there have been some, Justice White was a Democratic appointee, was quite conservative. Tom Clark, uh, you know, going back a little bit further, was also a Democratic appointee, quite conservative. So it's not... You know, you can't rubber stamp them, but, you know, in, in in the more recent era, the presidents have become much more focused on the ideology of the candidate and the sort of political, the, the whole process has become so politicized where, you know, when, when Kavanaugh was being nominated, before his name even was put out there, the, 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 a, a, a right-wing group said, we're going to spend $10 million supporting the nomination, whoever it is, right. because, it, because it would be a Republican. And the Democrat, Democratic group said, we're going to spend $8 million opposing them before they knew. And when Kavanaugh was actually named, the Women's March put out a, a press statement saying, you know, castigating him for being extreme, and they forgot to, to uh, cross out the XX and put in Kavanaugh's <laughs> so, name. So it's become very political on all sides, and, you know, that makes it less likely that you're going to get a justice to kind of, you know, change his or her stripes, can I, I think. Can, can, before we talk about cases from the 
the term then. I wonder if we can just draw back a little bit. And I, I wonder from, from your perspective, especially, like, what do you see as the, for lack of a better word, like, what, what do you see as the, as the role of the court then, given that in today's society? You know, do you see its influence? I mean, where do you see the court stand in terms of, of where we are? I mean, we could talk about where it is in the future, but I wonder where you think of, of the court today. So I think, look, I think, yes, we have justices appointed with very fairly, you know, specific ideological worldviews, but the court's legitimacy rests on it being perceived as open to all, open-minded, deciding on the basis of law, not politics, independent from the political process. That is critical to their legitimacy. And I think that's actually, I think we should uh, hold them to that. Uh, I think that is what checks them from just deciding everything five for, I mean, if you think about, if this was Congress, right? If Congress was five Republicans and four Democrats, we know how every case would come out, right? right, right. And, and it doesn't come out that way. And that's because of the force of this Ideal, and it is an ideal, and it is not met with it by any means perfectly. This ideal that the judge, the justices are supposed to be deciding on the basis of law, not politics, was to be independent of the political process. They don't like when we talk about them as Republican or Democrat or even appointed by, but because they, you know, as as just, I mean, I, I remember when President Trump condemned. The judge, I think it was the judge in the census case, as an Obama judge, and just when he ruled against him and. Uh, just Chief Justice Roberts issued a statement, very rare, uh, in response, saying there are no Obama judges and no Bush judges and no Trump judges and no Clinton judges. We are all judges trying to do the best we can, et cetera. And, you know, if you can be skeptical about that, and you should be skeptical about that to some degree, but it is also an important ideal. And I think they're, you know, they're, they're to some degree, at least anyway, in this term, they have shown some inclination to— you know, pay heed to that. It seems that Roberts is extremely aware of that ideal and is working very hard to, as you as you said, pushing back against Trump when he had to. Uh, and I'm looking at those those cases that you just mentioned, the the eight uh, that went for the yeah. Republican way and the yeah. eight that went the Democratic way. Was that coincidence? Was that by accident? Or is that, are we seeing the invisible hand of Justice Roberts trying to protect that very idea? Well, so what's interesting about it to me is that of the eight where a, a Republican appointed justice joined the liberals, four of them were Justice Gorsuch joining the liberals in, in, in criminal cases where he found laws to be unconstitutionally vague or to um, not give sufficient power to the jury. Um, but the other four, each one of the justices, uh, conservative justices, joined the liberals. So even Thomas joined the liberals on a case where all of his, you know, his conservative colleagues were on the other side. Roberts in the census case, uh, Kavanaugh in a case that allowed a, an antitrust class action to go against Apple, uh, where Roberts wrote the dissent. Kavanaugh joined the liberals, um, uh, and Alito joined the liberals as well on a case. So it's it's fairly. I mean, I think Roberts feels it most uh, distinctly because. As Chief Justice, he has a, uh, a responsibility for the institution, but I think they actually all feel it to some degree. Thomas is the least, uh, I think, the least cabined by this concept. But um, you know, I mean, you know, it's it is an important it's an important value, uh, and I think it's one we need to hold them to. And 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 you know, this I'll say one thing: this term 
one of the ways they avoided partisan divides was by not taking up mm. controversial cases and by delaying cases that would have been incredibly controversial this term. Some of those they're going to be deciding next term, the cases about whether Title VII protects uh, against discrimination against uh, LGBT folks, uh, a, a gun rights case out of New York, um, the DACA term, uh, whether, right. whether President Trump's right. termination of DACA. Those are going to be hugely controversial. Deciding those in a way other than 5-4 will be more of a challenge than deciding some of these other ones. Just, just real quick, um, what were your expectations of Kavanaugh in particular, and what did you observe in his first term? So um, Kavanaugh is, is uh, uh, you know, his, his opinions as a D.C. Circuit judge were um, conservative, Fairly solidly conservative, but not, um, uh, you know, absolutely consistently conservative. There were cases, you know, race discrimination cases where he ruled in favor of the of the employee. There were sex discrimination cases where he ruled in favor of the uh, uh, employee. There were uh, disability uh, cases where he uh, expressed some real concerns about discrimination against disability uh, uh, disabled folks. Um, but very, but very, you know, very conservative. Comes out of the Federalist Society, uh, picked for a reason. So those are my, you know. But I will also say those are my, you know, expectations is that he is going to be a solid conservative. But I think that um, his the partisan way that he responded to the to the uh, Christine Blasey Ford allegations played very poorly. Right in the in the in the public at large. I mean, it, it won him the seat, uh, yeah. arguably. Played, played well to one. Well, yeah, yeah, one. Made to, made, played well to the party of one. I think he would have won the seat either way. But you know, he he because I don't think the Republicans were going to give up this seat no matter what. Right. Um, but I think he. F I, I I am sure that he feels some. Uh, you know, reticence about that and some, uh, you know, he's not happy with that. And he, I think, will try to bend over backwards to show that he's not just a, you know, a right-wing hack. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think part of the reason that he ended up probably that, you know, Roberts appoints who gets to write opinions when he's in the majority, and he gave Kavanaugh this opinion in the Flowers case, which was this capital case involving race discrimination and jury selection by the prosecutor, Kavanaugh writes the decision. I think that part of that is like an, a, a, a PR, you know, mm -hmm. I don't think there's consciously, they're not, they don't have a communications uh, strategist <laughs> like Ed saying, here, it'd be really good to do this. But I think they, you know, unconsciously at a minimum, they are thinking about these kinds of things. And so, you know, the worry is that he is somebody like Thomas, who I think, you know, goes through a similar, you know, partisan battle uh, over sexual concerns and and spends the rest of his career with an incredible chip on his shoulder right. about anybody from that you know from the side that was critical of him and you know we have we can only hope that Kavanaugh is bigger than that mm -hmm. um, and 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 tries to rise above that and there's been some signs of that this term you know not a lot but we'll we'll see so I want to I, I do want to turn to cases this term but I think we would be negligent if we didn't ask you about one thing and I, I want to just for the listeners of Talking Liberties a year ago 
we had Jeff Stone on on one of our early podcasts talking about the court, and we talked about what might happen with reproductive rights and choice. And I wonder if, given the bans across the country that we've seen, the challenges that the ACLU has brought, and the cases that are working their way through the court, if I don't want to ask you to forecast necessarily what would happen, but but what do you see generally? What do you think the trend lines are generally around that? And and what do you think we have ahead of us? So, you know, reproductive rights are definitely in the crosshairs of the um, the anti-choice movement, and they feel buoyed by President Trump's appointment of two new justices, and that's why you're seeing this, you know, spate of anti-abortion uh, laws, including the um, seven bans enacted in the last six months in, in, in various states. Uh, you know, we've challenged five of those bans. One of our colleagues, the Center for Reproductive Rights, has challenged one of the others, and one of the others won't go into effect as long as uh, the other states is, is invalid. So, so and, I, and, and we've, we've gotten injunctions against a couple of them, and I think we'll get injunctions against the others because they are blatantly unconstitutional. But the long game for the, uh, the, the challengers is that they think they might have five votes to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, I think time will tell on that. We've got some tea leaves this term. Um, so we had three abortion cases up before the court this term in the in the sense that we had won uh, below. We had cha- successfully challenged abortion restrictions, one in Alabama on the most common method of second trimester abortions, two in Indiana, uh, one challenging an ultrasound requirement where women are who before they can get an abortion, they have to sit through an ultrasound uh, in which the doctor describes what he sees on the scene and pl- uh, on the screen and plays the, the fetal heartbeat, even if the woman does not want to see this, uh, and an, an, what they call an anti-discrimination provision, which says that you can uh, not terminate a pregnancy if you're doing so based on the sex, race, or disability of the fetus. Uh, and I, no, no one does you know, chooses to terminate based on the sex or race of the fetus. It's really about uh, disability. And yes, people choose to terminate on the basis mm-hmm. of disability. Um, uh, they the Indiana sought to prohibit that. So we won all of those challenges. The state states asked the Supreme Court to review those, and this term the court denied review in the anti the the disability case denied review in the Alabama case challenging this most common method of second trimester abortions is still holding the case about ultrasound. So they so what what do we know from that? They did, they were not eager to jump in and take on Roe versus Wade or or even, you know, um, sort of incremental chip chipping away at um, at Roe versus Wade, but I think that's in part you know, consistent with what I've been saying, which is that the court, you know, started this term wanting to kind of disabuse the country of the notion that the court is totally controversial, totally partisan, and you know, you take up an abortion issue, you are walking right there. Partisan yeah. divide. So, but uh, you know, long term, it's a there's a you know, it's a real threat because you, I think, you do have five justices who would never have voted for Roe when it came down. Uh, who are, you know, ideologically uh, co- uh, opposed to the practice of abortion and constitutionally think it's on, you know, weak uh, grounds uh, in terms of its jurisprudence. And so I think, you know, there there will be—this is going to be a long fight. Um, uh, and the best we can do 
uh, is to continue to challenge these laws in the courts, but also to build up support outside of the courts for the incredible importance of reproductive choice, and particularly among um, elites. Because I think that if the court sees that it will be very unpopular for it to undermine women's uh, choice, and particularly among elites, they are elites after all, that's who they pay attention to more than, more than the rest of us. Um, uh, then I think um, you know we have a shot at, uh, at at holding on to what we have. But this has been a you know ever since Roe, there's been a campaign to to chip away at it, and the right is not the right that it was when Roe versus Wade was decided. This is Supreme Court 101. But when the when the court says they won't hear a case, does that mean no, never, or does that mean not now? Does that mean try again, or is it depend it means, on the case? It means they won't. Yeah. So there's all the court. Um, the court's jurisdiction is, is discretionary, meaning it doesn't have to hear anybody's appeal for the most part. There's some very minor exceptions, but generally doesn't have to. So the first stage is always, will the court even decide the case? And most of the time they deny review in most cases. Um, Until the lower court stands. The lower court's decision stands. The denial has no precedential effect. So you know if that question comes up again, they could take it up again. And oftentimes they wait until there are two courts that have, or more that have decided uh, in, in, in opposite ways, and then they're the only ones who can sort of resolve the conflict. We should, we should move on and talk a little bit about a couple of the cases from, from the end of this term. And I'm going to do these, I think, uh, a little bit in the reverse order. I was thinking about it. Let's start, let's start with kind of the win uh, for civil liberties, and that's the census question, um, at which frankly, just resolved itself yeah, finally, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, amazingly, after the decision. I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit. I, I think we've gotten accustomed to what the, the screaming and shouting was about, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about what the case was about itself. So the case was essentially about whether the Secretary of Commerce, who is charged with taking a census every 10 years, uh, could go against the unanimous recommendations of the Census Bureau uh, and put a citizenship question on the short-form census that every form that everybody gets in, in, in the country. And the reason the Census Bureau was uniformly against putting the question on the census was a concern that it would lead immigrant families and immigrant households not to f answer the census. And that would lead to an undercount. They estimated an undercount of 8 million people who would not answer because if you add the, you know, because of this question. Uh, fearing that it could somehow be used against them, whether it can or can't, it, it, you know, it doesn't matter. What matters is the fear. Uh, and so they were opposed to uh, asking the question. It has not been asked uh, on a census since 1950 for precisely this reason. Um, uh, the secretary was dead set on putting it on the on the census. He didn't say why he was dead set on putting the census, but he he sort of shopped around to various agencies trying to get uh, some agency to give him a, a, a reason for doing so. Nobody seemed interested. He finally personally interceded with uh, Jeff Sessions, and Jeff Sessions said, "I'll do whatever you want." And the next you know week, he gets a letter from the Justice Department saying, "Please add a citizenship question to the census to help us enforce the Voting Rights Act." 
and then they 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 went forward with that. Had, we, had Jeff Sessions been very aggressive in terms of um, enforcing the Voting Rights Act to I, that I, point? I, I take it that's a rhetorical. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. You could take it however yeah. you want. Yeah. Uh, so so we we challenged this in court under the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, which allows courts to overturn agency actions when they are arbitrary or capricious. And we argued that it was arbitrary capricious, both because the Census Bureau had shown, and all the evidence in the record showed, that if you ask the question, it will reduce the accuracy of the count, and it will not get you better citizenship information than existing using existing government records and polling, which is what the Census Bureau recommended, what they have been doing for the last 70 years to determine you know, how many citizens and non-citizens we have. And um, uh, so we said it's arbitrary for the secretary to just go against the unanimous opinion of, the, of his experts and against all the evidence in the record. And we argued this VRA rationale it's bullshit. Uh, we, we didn't use that term in court. We used the term That's pretext. a legal term. I'm yeah, not the legal term is pretext. <laughs> uh, and we won on both grounds in the, in the district court. It, the, the government then appealed it immediately to the Supreme Court on a fast track, arguing it has to be resolved by the end of June. And so you, we, you're going to skip the Court of Appeals, go right to the Supreme Court. We did that. And, um, uh, uh, and, and the Supreme Court... Uh, ultimately decided five to four with Justice Roberts joining the the four more liberal justices that indeed the VRA enforcement rationale was a pretext, in his words, contrived, uh, and that when agencies engage in action that is going to be reviewed by courts, they have to give the real reason because the whole point of judicial review is to assess that reason. And if you give a contrived reason, that's not, that defeats the purpose of judicial review. Um, so um, uh, a great victory. Uh, it wasn't a victory that just, that President Trump immediately uh, accepted. He's not, he doesn't, um, uh, take loss very well. So, so we had this rigmarole over the last uh, several weeks where the the uh, the Justice Department lawyers came into the court and said, "Case is over. We lost in the Supreme Court. We told the Supreme Court we had to have this resolved by the end of June. We've lost. There's nothing we can do." Trump hears about that, issues a, a tweet saying, "This is it, it, it. It's been reported that we have given up. That's fake news." Right. It was his own lawyers making that assertion to a court. The next day, the lawyers had to go in with the tail between their legs, saying, "Well, you know, we said yesterday that the case is over. We've been uh, directed to see if we come up with another rationale." They then spent, uh, you know, some several days trying to come up with another rationale. All the career lawyers on the case resigned from the case because they th felt that they were being pushed forward in an, in an, in an, in an improper way where there wasn't a, a legal way forward. And um, uh, we challenged even that in court, and the court said you can't just you know, replace the lawyers. You have to give reasons for why. Uh, and then Trump uh, just uh, yesterday uh, announced that he was giving up and that he was going to figure out uh, how many citizens there are in this country by using existing government records and polling, which is what we'd been arguing all along. Right. So I, I really thought during this whole rigmarole, as you called it, that this was going to be Trump's Andrew Jackson moment where Jackson famously apocryphally said that, uh, you know, John Marshall has, has made his decision, let John Marshall enforce it, uh, that he was going to, in a sense, defy the Supreme Court. Uh, did you have similar concerns? So I, I didn't. I don't—I I think— um, you know, when John Marshall uh, 
was the chief. He was the fourth ever chief justice. The court was not an established institution at the time. Um, the court is a pretty established institute, right? The last time somebody actually tried to refuse to follow uh, a Supreme Court decision was uh, after Brown versus Board of Education about 50 years ago, and the federal troops were called out. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so, you know, I, I think it would uh, it would take a, a pretty I, I don't expect, I didn't expect him to do that. But I did expect him to, you know, go through hell or high water to try to come up with some other rationale and try somehow to get the citizenship question on the census. You know, and, and, and um, uh, but I think, you know, we had basically, they had boxed themselves in with this June, uh, June date. And uh, at the end of the day, the, you know, and I think also the fact that a lot of career lawyers in the Justice Department stood up to the president said, we are not going to do your bidding. Uh, that's, I think we have to give them a lot of credit. Um, uh, and I think that played a role in, the, in, in Trump eventually you know, backing down. Yeah. So the other case that you mentioned that came down was the gerrymandering case. And I think we can call this not a victory, yeah. or at least not at this time. It was about race-based gerrymandering. No, so, no we got political, political. Excuse me. Yeah. Excuse me. I got that backwards. It's, it was about political, but but left open the question of race-based gerrymandering, as I understand it. So I guess we should take a step back to the beginning. What what exactly was decided? What, yeah. what is still on the table? And yeah. uh, how, yeah. how, how worried should we be? So, so— um, uh, the court distinguished race, racial, racially motivated districting or gerrymandering, which is illegal, and the court does enforce. Um, this was about partisan gerrymandering, which is where uh, legislature draws districts to entrench the power of the incumbent party uh, over the power of the uh, of the power the, the party that's out of power sort of regardless of how the populace votes. And, you know, you saw this in, in, in one of the cases that was before the court in North Carolina. It's basically a 50-50 state uh, Democrat-Republican, but the Republicans had the majority in the legislature. They created the map um, totally, uh, you know, unilaterally, totally iced out the Democrats, never allowed the Democrats to even see the map. Uh, it was voted on on party lines. And it come, they, they come out with a result in which in a state where the vote is divided 50-50, you have in the 13-member congressional delegation from North Carolina, 10 Republicans and three uh, Democrats. And that was intentional. And in the, in the legislature, somebody asked, well, why have we you know, chosen 10 Republican seats and three Democrat seats? And the, and the guy responds, because we couldn't figure out a way to get 11 <laughs> Republican seats and two Democratic seats. I mean, it was blatant partisan uh, uh, motivation and very extreme. And so, and this is all made possible by the sophistication now, both of data about voters as well as the capacity using computer programs to draw lines. I should say exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so it's become a, a greater uh, problem because there's so much data out there about us that they can predict how we're all going to vote. And then they, you know, instead of the constituents picking their legislators, the legislators pick their constituents. Um, and um, what ra and, and so. Um, the lower courts uh, held that this North Carolina 
North Carolina essentially went too far. It was too partisan, and it violated um, the Equal Protection Clause, uh, and it also violated the First Amendment because you're essentially p penalizing Democrats because of their political views and giving power to Republicans because of their political views. Under the First Amendment, the government's supposed to be neutral uh, as between political views. Um, and what Roberts basically said was, this is just too hard. Uh, <laughs> deciding how much partisan motivation is too much partisan motivation is not something that the federal courts are equipped to do. Why? Because some partisan motivation is inevitable. Once you give the job of drawing districts to a legislature, they're going to, you know, take partisan considerations into effect. So you can't rule, he says under the Constitution, you can't rule out all partisan uh, consideration. The Constitution doesn't rule out all partisan consideration. Then the question becomes, how much is too much? He said there's no real way to, to make that, uh, to, to, to draw that line. And because there's no clear way to draw that line, these cases are going to be uh, decided by courts in contexts in which it's always going to be one party is going to be the winner and another party is going to be the loser. And if there's not a clear standard, people are going to think, well, the reason the court voted in favor of this districting was because there's five Republicans on the court. And the reason they voted against this one is because there's five Republicans on the court. And it, and it would sort of draw the court into the partisan muck. So in a way, Robert's decision is consistent with what I was talking about in terms of the way the court has been trying to pitch itself to the world as a nonpartisan entity. The concern is that deciding these cases would draw the courts into the partisan muck. Justice Kagan wrote a fantastic, powerful dissent in which she said, you know, we can do this. And she pointed to the fact that several courts have done this, and they've done it in ways that, you know, seem pretty, pretty uh, legitimate. So, in, in North Carolina, what they did was they said, okay, what, is North, what are North Carolina's official criteria for districting? Let's put those into a computer. Let's have the computer generate 3,000 randomly generated maps using the criteria North Carolina says it uses, not partisan advantage. And then we'll look at those maps and we'll look at you know, what the median distribution of Republican and Democratic seats is, you know, and in 50-50 state, turns out to be a 50-50. And then we'll look at the Republic, the map that the Republican legislature actually adopted. And if it's far out of sync with the median, that shows that partisan motivations deeply skewed it. And when they did that, they took 3,000 maps, and the Republican map was not just in the more extreme, you know, side of the of the of the random sampling. It was more partisan than any one of the 3,000. <laughs> so, 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 so uh, you know, Chief Justice Robertson asked in his majority, how much is too much? She, uh, Justice Kagan responded in her dissent, this much is too much. We at least can say that this much is too much. And uh, Charles Freed, who uh, uh, was the Solicitor General under Ronald Reagan, uh, is a uh, Republican, uh, professor at Harvard Law School, wrote a piece um, just in the last week uh, criticizing Roberts for his decision and saying, you know, of course, courts decide things all the time that don't have clear, bright line rules. I'll um, know it when I see it comes yeah, to mind. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 and we do it all the time. So to take the courts out of this one, which is a practice, partisan gerrymandering, that 
that goes to the heart of the democratic process. If, again, if, if the legislators are picking their constituents rather than the constituents picking their legislators, what's democratic about that? And Robert says, well, the states can fix it, but, uh, but the political routes to fix it are very challenging because most of them involve the legislature giving up its power to draw districts that will determine whether they get reelected or not. Can I just add one real quick thing? Yeah. If you were Mickey Mantle, I would want to know what it was like to first step into the batter's box. And if you were Freddie Mercury, I would like to ask you what it was like to look out at Wembley Stadium filled for the first time. What was it like? You've tried so many cases in front of the Supreme Court. What was it like the first time you stepped into that box and saw the justices? Oh, my God. Uh, totally nerve-wracking. Yeah. Totally nerve-wracking. But the amazing thing is that, you know, so it was very hard to get out my first few words. Like, I practiced <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice and may it please the court because that's how you're supposed to start. I practiced that over and over again because I was, I was deathly afraid I wouldn't even be able to do that. But then as soon as you get a question, you are in a conversation. And the rest of the half hour, and it's only a half hour, is a conversation in which you are getting peppered with questions and you are answering those questions. And it's a it's a dialogue. And 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 once you're in that dialogue, you're no longer nervous. At least Who in my asked you the first question? The first question in my case, uh, I think came from uh, uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, and the second was from Justice Scalia. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> One-two punch. Yeah. 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 So interesting. <laughs> Great. David Cole is the National ACLU Legal Director. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for sitting down and doing this, Tom. Thank you for doing this together. This Ed, was thank fun. you so we much. Should, we should do this again. I let, let any time. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. I'd be happy to, happy to join. <laughs> yeah, we could have a weekly yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah. there we go. <laughs> thank you for joining us today for this review of the Supreme Court's last session. A special thanks to Tom Moss and the Indivisible Chicago Podcast for helping to make this episode possible. Take a look for more of their episodes wherever you find your podcasts, and you can find out more about Indivisible Chicago at indivisiblechicago.com. And a very special thank you to our guest, ACLU National Legal Director David Cole, for helping us to understand developments within the Supreme Court. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever, executive producer Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Philip Von During. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate us. You can visit our website at aclu-il.org, or you can contact us directly at Talking Liberties, all one word, at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.